Lord, we rejoice in your goodness and your mercy. But Lord, we also acknowledge that you are a just God and Jesus, your son, had to die on a cross that the justice could be met for our sins to be forgiven. And they are. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, God. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word, God, to know you, to, to better understand you, to get a better grasp of your character. God, to see the promises that you have there for us and to also see the cautions that are laid out for us. God, I pray this morning as we look in your word that you speak to us, that we might learn, that we might discover more of who you are and what you have for us, in us and through us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, the title of my message this morning is Finishing Well. Finishing Well. It's actually chapter 13 in the story, as you're reading along in the story. Um, it's really, I thought, an interesting story. It's an interesting chapter. It's the study of Solomon. And as we look at the life of Solomon, it is both a amazing, amazing encouragement when we look at the life of Solomon, but it also should be uh, a powerful warning for every single one of us when we look at the life of Solomon. When it comes to a story, the most important part of the story is the ending. Amen. How many of you read a book to get to the middle? How many of you start a product, project so you can leave it in the middle, half done? I know you do that, but how many of you start out that way? I got a million of them. It's the ending that's the important thing. You know, no one wants to have these words spoken at their funeral. He did pretty good for a while, but he was a mess at the end. At least I don't want to have those words spoken at my funeral. And you know what? I, I certainly don't want to get to heaven. Instead of hearing the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, I hear God look at me and say, wow, you were doing so well. What happened? I don't think any of us want to hear those kinds of words. We want to finish well. There's a professor from the Dallas Theological Seminary named Howard Hendricks, and he did an intensive Bible study on leaders in the Bible. And he came to the conclusion that there are slightly more than 100 leaders, as you might define them, in the Bible. And in his study of them, two-thirds of them finished poorly. They did not finish well. Two-thirds. One-third finished well. God wants us to finish well. We have a destiny in Christ for each of us, and He doesn't want us to get halfway. He doesn't even want us to get 98% of the way. He wants us to finish well, to finish strong. Two-thirds fail in the Bible. I think it's at least that probably in the lives of Christians and sadly in the lives of so many Christian leaders. If you follow such things in the news, not all of the failures make the public news, but in Christian circles and magazines, you can read about Christian leader after Christian leader who fail, who don't finish well. Today we're going to look, as I said, at Solomon. If there was ever a man to my natural way of thinking, that should have finished well, it should have been Solomon. And we'll see why as we look at his story. 
First of all, who was Solomon? Just to give you a little bit of a snapshot of his life. First of all, he was the son of King David. David and Bathsheba. And he was anointed to be king before David died. And then he was set in as king on the throne when King David did pass away. When you pick up your Bible and if you open it about in the middle, you'll come to somewhere near Proverbs. Solomon wrote the Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote the Song of Solomon. Man, and if you read the Proverbs, you could study those for the rest of your life. It changed you completely. The words of wisdom that are written in that book are eternal words of wisdom. And he wrote them. He's the guy. When David was told and he couldn't build the temple, he said, your son will build the temple for my presence, for the ark. David was disqualified because he was a man of war, a man of blood. Solomon got to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. What an amazing honor. And not only did he build it, he dedicated it to the Lord. It was 480 years after they had left Egypt when they finally got the temple built. And Solomon was the guy. And when he dedicated the temple, can you imagine this scene? They sacrificed, the Bible says, over 22,000 oxen and over 120,000 sheep. It had to take days and days in dedicating the temple. And then they moved the Ark of the Covenant in to the temple that had been God's plan for so many years. And it says when, when, David, when Solomon had the Ark brought into the temple, the glory of God filled the temple that the priests had to fall prostrate a picture of the presence of God and the approval of God that his home, his house was built. And remembering in the upper story, God's goal is to live with his people and intimacy and relationship with his people. Everything that he's doing is to restore that relationship. And now finally with Solomon again, we see in that upper story picture, here it is, Solomon is king. He's serving God. It says he loves God. He's built the temple. God comes and His presence inhabits the temple. He's living with His people. Man, things are looking, looking good. The lower story is even looking good for a change and for a while. But I'm going to back up a little bit before we look at His finish and look at the beginning of His kingship, of His reign. In... 1 Kings chapter 3, it reads this, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And, the God, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Now sometimes when you read about the high places, you think of a, the idol worship. Um, we don't see that right here in the story, but the tabernacle of Moses, the brazen altar of Moses, where all the sacrifices were taking place, had been moved to Gibeon. And that's where he went to sacrifice. 
But the words I really want us to focus on for a moment are those last words that God spoke to him in that dream. Ask what you wish me to give you. How many of you would like to hear those words from God? What do you want, Mike? I'll give it to you. Well, I could have a long list. Some of it would probably be fleshly if I wasn't real careful. What would you ask for if God said, I'll give you anything, anything you want? Anything you want. Well, remember, he's saying this to Solomon. He's, it's very early in his reign as, as, as king. He's not very experienced. He's, he's seen his father David rule and reign, and other than that major mishap with Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, he was a man after God's own heart, and he led the nation of Israel well. And there's Solomon. What would he ask for? Well, here's what he says in 1 Kings 3, verse 9. Give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Of all the things that Solomon could have asked God for, he asked for wisdom. He, was, he showed his humility, his teachable spirit, that he would be obedient to the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm new at this. I don't know how to do it. Pressure's on. I don't want to mess it up. God, they're your people. Who could do this? No one in their own strength could do this. Lord, give me wisdom. And that's what he asked for. And needless to say, God liked his answer. In 1 Kings 3.9, or excuse me, in 3.10, it says this, and it won't be up on the screen. It's 3.10 through 14. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing, and you have not asked for yourself long life, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Man, just like he's already given it to him. And he says, Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall there be one ever again after you. Think of that. The wisest man that ever lived on this earth, except for Christ himself, is Solomon. And then he goes on and says, I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there will be none among you of the kings who will be like you in all of your days. And he adds, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days also. He so was honoring of Solomon's request for wisdom that he gave him his request and he added all these other things onto it. And right away, we see in the scripture, his wisdom is made manifest to the people, to the masses. It's a really interesting story. Two harlots that live together are both pregnant. 
And they give birth within just three days of one another. So they have these two women living in the same house. No one else lives there but them and their new babies. And at night, one of them rolls over on its, their baby, their son, and kills it. It dies. The next morning, the other one whose baby was alive woke up to nurse her baby, and it's dead. And she looks at it and discovers, this isn't my baby. The other one had switched babies. And they're arguing about whose child it is, and they go before Solomon. And they bring this problem to him. And they declare back and forth, this isn't my baby. The one that died is not my baby. This living baby belongs to me. And the other one's, no, 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 that's not true. This is my baby. Her baby died. She, she, she smothered her baby. She killed it in her sleep. And they go back and forth. And Solomon listens to it. And then he repeats back to them what he's hearing. And finally he just says to one of his men, go get a sword. And take the sword and we'll divide this living baby in half and we'll give one half to each of the women. And of course, as soon as he said that, the real mother says, no, my Lord, don't do that. Don't kill the child. Spare its life. Let that woman have the baby. And the other one speaks up right away. No, let it be done as you say that neither one of us would have the child and wisdom speaks and says, give the child. That's the real mother. Now we can read that story and think, oh, it doesn't take a whole lot of wisdom. We'd have probably wanted to do a DNA test and all that stuff. But his wisdom, the people, it says, the people feared Solomon. They were in awe of his wisdom. And they said, the wisdom of God surely is in this man. And his reputation was beginning. And Solomon's wealth and his power and his reputation increased. As you're reading the story, it goes into a story about the Queen Sheba, Queen of Sheba, who comes with an unbelievable amount of wealth. She's heard of Solomon's wisdom, and she comes and wants to ask him. She's got a, it's like she's got a long list of questions she wants to ask Solomon about. And she comes and brings us unbelievable gift of wealth and says she sits down with Solomon and comes up with every question she can think of and Solomon answers them all until every question she had is totally satisfied. And the Queen of Sheba goes home and word spreads. And all of a sudden, all the kings from all over are wanting to come and see Solomon, to talk to Solomon. In Second Chronicles 9, it puts it this way. King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth were seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every single man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, so much, year after year after year. And when you read in other places in the Scripture, they brought, brought tons of gold. Silver was almost meaningless. There was so much. Horses by the thousands. Solomon builds the temple, dedicates it. The presence of God fills the temple. God appears to him a second time in a dream. And he gives him this promise and a warning. 
the promise the second time is, if you do what I've asked you to do, I will fill all the promises I've given to your father David. But he says, but if you or your sons do not, and then he goes in to what will really happen. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But at this particular time, man, what a role Solomon was on. God's upper story, God in the lower story, they were in alignment. God was, had raised up Solomon as an example that the whole world wanted to come to Solomon. They wanted to see this man that God was using. God's goal, his, his purpose was to have a people that the world would look at and say, wow, their God is the God above all other gods. And Solomon's start, that's where he's at. That's what it looks like. It's an amazing thing to behold. Blessings, abundant blessings. But there's trouble in paradise. In Proverbs 14.8, now remember, Solomon wrote the Proverbs. He had written these words. The prudent understand where they are going, but fools deceive themselves. I think he could have took his own advice. The prudent understand where they are going. Fools deceive themselves. This is the wisest man that's ever lived. Solomon didn't wake up one day, get out of bed and say, I think I'll wreck my life today. I think I'll wreck the relationships in my life and I think I'll wreck the nation I'm king over. Didn't happen that way. Doesn't happen that way for us either. We don't decide one day we're going to get up and see how bad we can mess up and see if we can destroy everything that we're surrounded with. It might happen, but it happens slowly. And in Solomon's life, it happened slowly. He had begun really well, but there were warning signs, and he'd blown through all of them. And things were about to get bad. When did it start? You ever ask that question about your own life when you find yourself in a real mess? How did this happen? How did I get here? Where did it start? I didn't wake up this morning and want to be here. Now I'm here. Well, in Solomon's life, we can look back and we can see maybe some of the places it could start. It might have started when he married a daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt. And he, and he made an agreement, a treaty if you would, with Pharaoh and Egypt. God had said, stay away from Egypt. Don't ever go back to Egypt. Don't get horses from Egypt. Don't do any of that stuff. Maybe it started there. Maybe that first foreign wife led to hundreds of wives. If you've read the story of Solomon, you know it says he had 700 wives. Many of them were foreign. And then there were his concubines. Maybe it started there. Maybe it started with that commerce with Egypt. The trading, him sending people to Egypt to bring back things from Egypt. The, these wonderful horses. This magnificent chariot from Egypt. Maybe it was when God's blessing of all this wealth and prosperity started to get his attention and he got his eyes off of God. We don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. But so many of these things had been strictly prohibited by God. 
In Deuteronomy 17, little things like this intrigue me. It says this, The king must not build up a large stable of horses. Brags about how many horses he had. Or he must not send people to Egypt to buy horses. Isn't it amazing the details God goes to? For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself. Wow, I wonder if 700 qualifies as many. And 300 concubines. There was a lot of problems brewing. Don't take all these wives because they will turn your heart away from the Lord. And then he says in Deuteronomy, you must not accumulate large amounts of wealth and silver and gold for himself. For the treasure, the temple, sure. But not for yourself. Well, whenever it started, Solomon didn't finish well. It was in really great jeopardy. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, it says this, In Solomon's old age, they, meaning his wives, turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. It's just mind-boggling to me to consider David, the wisest, Solomon, the wisest man on earth, all this wisdom, all the blessings of God. He is seeing this unbelievable fruit of the promises of God if you're obedient. And yet, with all this wisdom, he blew it. He blew it. The warning that God had given in 1 Kings 9, I'm going to read it now, had come to pass. So Solomon had been told specifically by God when he said, the promises are, if you obey me and you're obedient and you do what I ask, you will be this shining light of who I am to the nations around you. If you do all this, I'll fulfill every promise I made to your father David. And then he said, but if you don't, and this is what he said, but if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the commands and decrees I have given you, and if you serve and worship other gods, then I will uproot Israel from this land that I have given them. I will reject this temple that I have made holy to honor my name. I will make Israel an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. And though this temple is impressive now, all who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads in amazement. They will ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to this temple? And the answer will be, because his people abandoned the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and they worshiped gods instead and bowed down to them. That is why the Lord has brought all these disasters upon them. Boy, as I read that verse and I realize that Solomon had this warning from God. God spoke to him. And yet, he fell. And as I read those verses... My imagination brings it to even today. And I think about what can happen to a nation and to a people 
who abandon their God. A nation who raises up many other gods, many other idols, and a nation that begins to worship all of the things instead of the one who created everything and the destruction that can come. Solomon did not finish well. And as I said before, just like Solomon, none of us would wake up one day and decide to destroy our lives. But if the wisest man that ever lived failed, what about us? How do we finish well? Do you want to finish well? I want to finish well. I want to finish well. How do I do it? If, if Solomon couldn't do it, if two-thirds of the leaders, according to this professor in the Scripture, couldn't do it, how do I finish well? How do you finish well? I don't want to be one of them that are said, it started good, but it ended up a disaster. Solomon had rule over all of the tribes, all of the nations of Israel. And when his heart was focused on God alone, the blessings of God were upon him and his people and the nation. But when his heart became a divided heart, the nation was split and divided. And all of these tragedies begin to happen. What will it take to finish well? Well, I want to share with you seven things, and I'm not going to elaborate a lot. But I want us to think about these things because they're not impossible. And they're very practical. Seven characteristics of people who finish well. I'm taking these from a man by the name of Ken Boa, B-O-A who has done a lot of research and study of finishing well. Not just in the secular, but also in the Christian circles. And these are the seven that I'm rephrasing a little bit, but they're really his thoughts. And the first one is intimacy with Christ. If we want to finish well, we need to maintain an intimacy with Christ. We need to focus on loving Jesus way more than we focus on not sinning. Think about that for a second. We can sometimes get so wrapped up and focused on not sinning, not messing up, not screwing up, not doing it wrong, and our mindset is totally wrong. It's not about works. It's about loving Jesus. And as we focus on loving Jesus and focusing on enemy with Jesus, we will not want to sin. Our spirit and the Holy Spirit will be in alignment and our soul will line up with the Holy Spirit. We can get to a place that, where that Christ-likeness is developing. That doesn't mean we get sloppy with our lifestyle, but it means focus on Jesus and loving Jesus. And to a lot of us, I can remember years ago sitting in the church, Victory Church, before I was the pastor, and hearing people talk about loving Jesus. And I did not get it. My mind couldn't even go there. I didn't love myself. And I didn't believe there was a God that could love me. And if there was, I want to see him, touch him, feel him. I want to know before I could love him. And I wish I could tell you exactly what happened and when it happened and how it happened. But I do know 
as I was on that path of trying to understand what it means to love Jesus, pressing into the Word, studying, praying, meditating, talking to other people, all of a sudden I realized I love Jesus. He's real. He changed my life. He changed my life. He saved me. And He didn't have to. And we need to get to that place where we understand how much He loves us and be intimate and love Him back. And when we focus on that, we will finish well. We will not succumb to all of the temptations that are around us. We can finish well. When we love Jesus, the more we love Jesus, the more we will learn to put our confidence in Him and in Him alone. Number two, develop and maintain a loyalty to spiritual disciplines. Gal, as soon as I hear that word, there's something in me that just shivers. My flesh doesn't like discipline. I know that fruit of self-control is in there somewhere, but my flesh gets in the way so much. What spiritual disciplines? Prayer. Fellowship. Did you know fellowship is a spiritual discipline? The key thing there is who are you fellowshipping with? It doesn't mean we avoid the world, but we need fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. It builds us up. It strengthens us. It encourages us. It can keep us on the right track. Study. Sounds like work. How many of you loved school? There's a few of you that did. I'm not one of them. But I wasn't studying the creator of the universe who loves me. I can study about that. Read the words. Study. Worship. Worship Him. Worship Him. It's a spiritual discipline. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, in my personal life, I don't feel like worshiping Him all the time. Believe it or not, I stand up here in this front row some Sundays, I don't want to worship. It's just, there's things I've let get the best of me during the week, thoughts in my head, and maybe something that even happened this, on a Sunday morning, and I, I'm focused wrong, and it takes effort and says, you know what, I am going to worship God, Satan, you're not going to steal one moment of this time. We need to worship and I guarantee you, when you start worshiping, things start breaking loose. And your focus comes back, and you will finish well. But we need to work on these disciplines. And these disciplines, remember, are not an end of themselves. For us performance-based people, they can become an end of themselves. Well, I'm going to study, I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, I'm going to worship. I'll do whatever it takes. And boy, do I hate it. But I'm doing it. No, they're not an end in themselves. But there are means to an end of intimacy with Christ. And that's the goal. Number three, intimacy with Christ, loyalty to our spiritual disciplines, and having a biblical perspective on the circumstances of our life. You might be able to just rephrase that as we're doing the story this way. Keep your eyes focused on the upper story, God's story on what he's trying to do. You know, I'm going to try to, to read this so I say it exactly right. 
These are not my words. They're Ken Boa's words. He said, When we view our circumstances in the light of God's character instead of God's character in the light of our circumstances, we will come to see that God is never indifferent towards us. He's never left us, abandoned us on our own. We need to look at life's circumstances through the character of God. We go through terrible circumstances in our lives, all of us, at different times. They look differently in all of our lives. But they do not define the character of God. If they do, we are doomed to fail. And we will not finish well. God's character is loving. He is kind. He's compassionate. He is just. He hates sin. These are all attributes of His character. And they don't change dependent upon what's going on in your world. And if we start to allow that lie to get into our heads, we start to redefine who God is. And we are creating an idol that is not the one true God. We need to understand His character. We need to know who He is and look at what's going on in our lives. And if we understand His character, we will know, God, Your Word says that You love me, You'll never abandon me, and all things will work for good for those who love You. And God, I love You. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to trust You. It draws you to Him. Your focus is Him. We become greater and greater in our faith because we understand and know Him because there's intimacy in our relationship. That's how we finish well. We start defining who He is by what's going on in our life. You're creating your own God. And it won't work. It will not work. Number four. Maintain a teachable, responsive, humble, and obedient spirit. David exhibited that. Solomon lost that. Humility and responsive obedience are keys to maintaining a teachable spirit. You know, when, when we get so full of ourselves, we think we have all the answers. We are doomed. Because you don't. We don't. Only one has all the answers, God. We need to stay teachable. And humility is denying ourselves and keeping Christ on the throne of our life. If we can remain teachable, respond in obedience, humble, we will finish well. As we mature in Christ, we learn to trust Him more and more. And we learn to trust all of His promises in spite of trials and the things we don't understand. You know, when you and I really get it into our heart, our soul, our spirit, that He's a good God who loves you, and His goal is to bring us back into intimate relationship with Him, not to let us be divided and separated from Him, that that's His goal, and that He's going to bring about that purpose. All of a sudden, we can look at our circumstances and the trials and the tests that we're facing differently and say, God, I trust You completely. How is this going to draw me closer to You? I don't see it, but I believe it will. I'm going to just humble myself before You and let You do Your thing. And I'll be obedient to whatever your spirit prompts me in. Number five. This is a big deal to me. 
You hear me talk about it all the time. But you need to have a personal sense of your destiny. If you don't believe you have a destiny in Christ, what in the world are we on planet Earth for? Enjoy it and live it up and party to the hilt and die and turn to dust. Boy, that's a sad thing to think. A personal destiny. When we start to get a sense of our personal destiny, to to realize God has called every single one of us, that our journey is a purposeful journey. It's not just an accident. It's just not haphazard. There's a purposeful journey to take us to a place of intimacy with Him. To fulfill our destiny in Him. It's a journey that can be sustained only by faith and certain hope in who He is. We need to seek God. Ask Him, God, show me my destiny, part of my destiny. Where are we going? What is that thing that goes beyond tasks and jobs and duties? That doesn't mean we all quit our jobs in the workplace where He's called us to. It's part of our destiny, I hope. But what is our destiny that's bigger and beyond that? And we all have a general destiny. I can tell you that much. I know part of your destiny is to bring glory and honor to God. That's why He created you. But where it goes, what it looks like for each one, you need to figure it out and find it out and seek Him. And you know what? Out of intimacy with Him, you'll discover the destiny. And when we see a destiny, when we see a destiny, all of a sudden we get a better picture of the value and worth that we are to the King of Kings. And fulfilling that destiny becomes a passion in our lives. To bring glory to God in our destiny. And we'll finish well. We won't let anything distract us from that destiny. Just think how focused you and I can get in the natural and worldly things. Man, if, if all of a sudden there is something in me that, you know, I want, you know, God forbid, I want to run a marathon. But if I become focused, there will be nothing to throw me off track. I'm going to do the training. I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to fight through the pain. I'm going to run the miles. I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to fulfill that destiny. I'm going to fulfill that purpose. We'll put aside things. We'll cancel appointments. Sorry, I can't do that. I've got to run nine miles. I'll see you maybe afterwards. No, I can't eat that food. I can't drink that drink. We'll do whatever it takes to run a foolish race just think of the destiny for your life how it would motivate us keep us on the right track to finishing well number six don't be a lone ranger it won't work we need to have healthy relationships with mentors and people who will keep us accountable We need those kinds of healthy, godly relationships. Why? Because life is hard. It's hard for a Christian. It's not an easy life to live out. We need these healthy relationships of mentors and accountability partners to encourage us, to equip us, to exhort us, sometimes to rebuke us to keep us on that track. You will not finish well without this kind of support. 
I believe, again, when God gives that instruction that pastors misuse all the time to not forsake the gathering of the brethren, this is part of the reason why that's so important. Not to warm a chair, but he knows it's an important part of finishing well. Fellowshipping, gathering together corporately to worship, to cry with one another, love one another, be able to share our hearts with one another, be real, be transparent, and be vulnerable with one another. That's all foreign to the world. And sadly, it's foreign to too many of us. But it will help us to finish well. It will keep us on that track. And the last one, have an ongoing ministry of some sort that you are investing in the life of someone else. We are not to be reservoirs. You know, where all of the things that God reveals to us shows us the gifts, the talents. You know, everybody here has spiritual gifts that God has given to us. Why? To build up the body of Christ, to strengthen one another, to minister, to speak life into people, not to keep as a reservoir damned up. God pours out His blessings upon us that we might pour out blessings on other people. God fills us with the Holy Spirit, anoints us, not that we just feel great because it does feel awesome, but to pass it on, to impart it, to give life to other people. We get so self-focused. Can you imagine being Solomon? I can't, but if I could, I would probably quite easily think, wow, am I all it. Every king on the planet wants to come to me, and to do that, they got to bring tons of gold and silver, horses and chariots, and, and they can't stump me. I am the answer man. Wouldn't it be easy? And I believe that's part of what happened to Solomon. We can get so self-absorbed, not only in our circumstances that are negative, we can become very self-absorbed in the blessings of God, just like Solomon did. We need to pour into other people, ministry. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, you need to find out. Talk to people, talk to me, talk to the leadership, ask for a spiritual gifts assessment. They're amazing. But you need to know what your spiritual gift is. Some of you are already functioning in it and you don't even know you got it. That's great. But know what your spiritual gifts are. We've received them from God. We need to exercise them. Not only in the body of Christ. Did you know that your spiritual gifts can be used out in the world? And we need to exercise them. We need to develop them and use them. It's when we're doing that that we are really ministering in this power of the Holy Spirit and edifying God, bringing glory and honor to Him. So do you want to finish well? When I first started looking at it this, from this perspective this past week, I thought, wow, if Solomon can't do it, how in the world can we? Two-thirds failed. That's when you have to remind yourself, one-third didn't. Not every Christian leader today is failing. Not every Christian is failing. Let's be part of that group who finish well. But it takes intentionality. God has given us all that we need. He saved us. 
He's equipped us. He's giving us gifts. We have the Holy Spirit that Solomon didn't have. We can finish well. I just want to hear those words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you would stir in each one of us a sense of destiny. God, that we would have a sense of how valuable we are in your eyes and your sight and how we have a role to play in your perfect plan. God, take us and lead us into greater depths of intimacy with you. Lord, you know some of us aren't good at doing intimacy with anything or anybody. Lord, I pray you would break down those barriers and draw us to yourself. God, give us greater and greater grace in those areas where we lack in our discipline. Father, when we look to the Word, bring it to life by your Spirit. Draw us to yourself in prayer, worship. Help us to see who you are really and not see you through circumstances of life. God, we, we can so easily succumb to prideful thinking. God, I pray that you would do what is necessary in our lives to keep us teachable, humble before you, responding to the leading of your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray for each one of us that we would have those divine appointments, connections with people that can mentor us or that we can mentor, people that we can trust and know that love us, that we can be held accountable by. Father, build those relationships. Help us who are afraid to step out and approach people to be bold, to try to develop those relationships. And Lord, I pray that you would bring forth the gifts in the body of Christ here. God, that we believe the promises that you have amazing things to accomplish through your people right here. And Lord, I pray that those gifts would be pulled out, brought forth, that we might minister to others, that we would not be reservoirs, but we would be conduits of your love, your power, your grace, your mercy, that it would flow through us to the world. God, and I pray all these things that you would be glorified that the world might look upon us individually and corporately and they would see Jesus. They would know that there's something they need and they might come and ask what it is and we could share the good news of Christ. God, I pray now that you would watch over your people as we go our separate ways today. God, we pray your blessings upon our week. Make us fruitful for your kingdom. God, help us to have a spirit of excellence in all that we do for your glory and for your honor. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.